My name is uh, Jackson, and I have the, the joy of being one of the, uh, the youth workers here at the church. And so on a Sunday, I am usually squirreled away um, in the other side of the, the building with the youth, um, which is a lot of fun, year sevens to twelves, which, um, by the way, if you're interested in helping out, we're looking for some more helpers. Uh, just a bit of a side note. Um, they're, they're quite fun. Um, but, but I do have the privilege today of being in the service with you all, um, and so do the youth. So well done, guys. Yeah, good work. Um, um, and so we get, to, we get to all discuss together um, what it means to, to resolve with respect to our money. And I'm fully aware that we are in uh, 2023, uh, and there's no shortage of information out there about what to do with your money, about where to invest, uh, about how to make it grow and work for you. We are, after all, in the age of the barefoot investor. So I, I don't want to add any more unnecessary noise to an already loud topic. And I'm also aware of the, uh, the potential awkwardness of calling the church to be generous in their offerings and tithes, which is the same pool of money out of which I'm paid. There is a potential conflict of interest. Uh, but fortunately, uh, fortunately, God in his word has uh, spoken quite thoroughly and quite regularly on the topic of money. And this is especially the case when it comes uh, to the lips of Jesus in the Gospels. And so uh, today I will appropriately defer such feelings of awkwardness which might arise uh, by simply calling us to be faithful to the instructions of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so today I want to take a slightly different look at the, the topic of, of money. Instead of calling us to generosity uh, or a plea to, to give more to the offering plate um, or the tap and go stations as you walk out, I want to simply show that the, that the Bible, uh, when it talks about money and, and with this whole topic of, of resolving with regards to our finances, it often doesn't talk about money. Not primarily, anyway. Instead, it, it most fundamentally is about worship. So for the rest of the time uh, that we have together today, I just want to take us through two stories uh, from the Gospels in the Bible. Stories of, of two men and their interactions with Jesus um, and what that meant for their interactions with money. Um, so before we do, let's, let's quickly pray. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, we just want to Thank you so much for this morning uh, and for how we've been led so far uh, in worship, Lord, and in communion and in prayer. And Lord, I just pray right now that you would speak and that you give us ears to hear what it is that you've got to say and ready our hearts for, for your words. Um, more of you, Lord, and, and less of me. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so when I was given the topic of resolving with respect to money, I was given uh, the well-known story of Zacchaeus which I think is a pretty great uh, place to start. Uh, so if you want to flick on your phones or it's up behind me, um, to Luke 19, the story goes like this. He, that is Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. These are the first two things that we need to note about this man Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. Throughout the, uh, the Gospels, uh, and especially in the story of Luke, 
we encounter uh, many different tax collectors. But nowhere else in all of the Bible is anybody called the chief tax collector. So this guy, this guy stood alone at the top of the chain, in charge of all the other tax collectors. And this was an occupation which in the day was almost transparently crooked. These people, these tax collectors, worked for the occupying nation. They collected exorbitantly large taxes from their, their own people and handed the money on to the foreign nation. This was done to keep the people in subjection to the Roman Empire. And as such, these tax collectors were despised by the people. They were turncoats, deserters, working for the enemy, complicit in the oppression of the people of God. And even worse, they were complicit in Rome's opposition to God's sovereign rule of his people. And in for a penny, in for a pound, these tax collectors were well known for skimming off the top and pocketing the extra cash from their own people. So one did not become a tax collector to gain friends, but because it was incredibly lucrative. And Zacchaeus, the, the chief tax collector, well, this man was at the top of the rung. Think of Al Pacino in Godfather or somebody equally powerful. He was powerful. He was, he was despised. He was crooked. And he was incredibly wealthy. Verse 3. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. Here is uh, the third thing that we notice about Zacchaeus. Uh, despite his, his wealth uh, and his power and the comfort that these things would have afforded, there was something in him that wasn't completely satisfied. There was something still a little bit off that all of his riches and all of his power could not seem to fix. There was a spiritual hunger which sent him searching to see if this Jesus could be the one to fill it. And it was this desire that sent this, this powerful wealthy man up a tree, unfazed by the shame that that would bring him. Any self-respecting in that day would not climb a tree. That was for children. But this is Zacchaeus. He needed to see who Jesus was. So he ran ahead and climbed up a sycamore tree to see Jesus, for he was about to pass this way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, Hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried down and, he, uh, and received him. He hurried, sorry, and came down and received him joyfully. Out of everyone in the crowd, all the other people who, uh, let's face it, were probably more respectable, more moral, and a bit taller, Jesus forgoes all the others and comes and he looks up at Zacchaeus and chooses to come to his house. The tax collector, for goodness sake. What, what right did he have to be with Jesus, let alone have Jesus stay at his house, to be treated as equals with kingship, kinship, sorry, and respect? This was outrageous, inconceivable. And it's, it's so very important that we don't miss what just happened. 
the whole interaction, everything that's happened here, even the invite back to Zacchaeus' house, it's all initiated by Jesus. Jesus walks up to Zacchaeus. Jesus invites himself in. And all that's left for, for Zacchaeus to do is accept. Accept the invite, respond. And it's important to, to note that because that is always the way that it works with Christianity. It is always initiated by Jesus. It is always him graciously stepping out towards us, choosing us, not waiting for us to be cleaned up or good enough, but in the midst of our mess, in the midst of our sin, when we were up a tree and full of shame, he steps towards us first. And all that is left for us to do is accept. Romans 5 says this, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would, even dare, would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Whilst we were still weak, whilst we were still sinners, God loved us and Christ died for us. This is the crux of the gospel. In, in this short interaction, in these few lines with Zacchaeus, the gospel is summed up. We were powerless and Christ moved towards us first. Verse seven goes on. And when they saw it, they grumbled. That is the crowd. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and he said to the Lord, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to, you, give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, today, salvation has come to this house. Since he also is a son of Abraham. For the son of man has come to seek and to save the lost. And so we finally come to this, uh, this moment where Zacchaeus generously gives half of his goods uh, and then fourfold anything that he's, he's taken from somebody. And those of us who have heard this story a bit, we say, yes, of course. Uh, he was doing wrong, so righted his wrongs, gave away his money. He became the good guy at last. Good work, Zacchaeus. But if we, if we follow the, the sequence, of, sequence of events that we've just walked through together, it, it can seem a bit confusing. There's no talk of money. There's no sermon from Jesus about Zacchaeus, uh, Zacchaeus's wealth. There's no instruction uh, for him to, to give to the poor. There's no conviction of sin. In fact, there doesn't seem to be much of a link at all. Zacchaeus meets Jesus, or meet, Jesus meets Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus climbs down the tree, uh, declares that he'll give everything away, and then Jesus says, salvation has, has come to you. But what actually, what's, what's prompted this? What, what led to this, this sequence? And what's the, what's the link between the giving and the salvation? Because it would be easy to, to read this down the page and see it as a causal relationship. Zacchaeus did this, so Jesus did that. Which would almost go on to, to imply that, that Zacchaeus was in some way able to merit the gift of salvation. 
And I just want to say in the most emphatic way, no to that. That is absolutely not what this passage is saying. Salvation cannot be brought. It is from the Lord alone. It is through faith in Jesus Christ and not through works so that no one is able to boast. That's Ephesians 2, 8 to 9. So the reading that that Zacchaeus is giving some way and in somehow merited salvation can absolutely not be the case. So what then is happening here? Well, I would suggest that it is a matter of worship. And to help make that point, I want to talk about a a different story from from the Gospels. So we'll leave Zacchaeus there for the moment. We'll come back to him. Uh, And instead, we're going to meet uh, the rich young ruler. In Mark 10, we we encounter encounter this story uh, of a young man, a rich man. um, And he's called the rich young ruler in the book of Mark, I think, or Luke. I can't remember. Uh, And the story, this story will allow us to compare some stuff uh, with Zacchaeus. And so we'll start in uh, verse 17. And he, that is Jesus, was setting out on his journey. And a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So first thing we note is this guy already looks much better than Zacchaeus. Um, This guy literally runs to Jesus and he he throws himself down before Jesus. Even his his question seems quite religious uh, and well thought through. Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God, which is a very Jesus answer. uh, And I don't know what to make of it, so we'll move on. Um, (laughs) Verse 19, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. So what Jesus is giving him here is, is a selection of the Ten Commandments. And so the man replies to Jesus, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Now that is something that Zacchaeus could not have said. Zacchaeus had stolen. He bore false witness and he had defrauded. So we've got another one to the rich young ruler there. Verse 21 And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And he said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. When I first noticed that, that little inclusion in verse 21, it completely changed the way that I read this interaction. And Jesus looked at him and loved him. This little inclusion is found only in the book of Mark when it comes to this story. And it completely changes the tone and the atmosphere of this interaction. You might say, yes, of course, Jesus loved him because Jesus loves the world. That's the, the whole John three sixteen thing. But... But so often with Jesus' interactions with um, the religious folk, those who are pious, the, the scribes and the Pharisee, we see Jesus have very little patience. It's often a smackdown and Jesus tends to win. He takes no prisoners, right? Jesus puts them in, the pl- in their place 
drops the mic, and then fades out. And that's usually how that, that interaction happens. And that's how I'd always kind of read this, this interaction. I always thought, yeah, that rich kid getting his just desserts. You, you tell him, you tell him, Jesus. But that's, that's not the case. Because Mark includes that Jesus looked at him and loved him. To the best of this young man's knowledge and understanding, he had probably kept the commandments that Jesus had said. He probably had sought to be righteous and sought to be holy. And upon hearing of Jesus' presence, presence he ran to him. And he was driven by this nagging question, is that all enough? Is everything I've done, is, is all of those keeping of the rules, is that enough? Will I inherit eternal life? Perhaps he was driven by the same spiritual hunger that drove Zacchaeus. And upon falling to his knees before Christ and asking his question, Jesus did not look at him with judgment or disgust. No, Jesus looked at him and loved him and asked from him the one thing that made this young man's stomach drop. Jesus said, you lack one thing. Go sell all you have to the poor. So all you have and give it to the poor and your treasure will be in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. If Jesus loved him, if Jesus looked at him and loved him, why would he ask this? Why would he ask the one thing that would turn this young man away? Why not Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus had great possessions too. He was wealthy and he was much less righteous than this man. Why didn't Jesus mention money with Zacchaeus at all? And with Zacchaeus, when Zacchaeus decided, he gave away half of his possessions and his, his wealth and fourfold anything he um, had taken, but he still had some left over. Jesus didn't ask him to give it all away. But with this guy, the guy who ran to him, who bowed before him, who sought to keep the law and keep unstained, why did Jesus ask him to give it all away? It's because Jesus, Jesus uh, he knew better than we do. And he was not asking in order to condemn, but to seek to put, point something out in love. And in kindness, he was showing this young man what he missed. And as I keep saying, it all comes down to worship. The Bible talks an awful lot about idols and idolatry, bowing down to carved images made by men, trading in worship of uh, the one true God for gods made out of human hands or from human hands. And when, uh, when we read of this idolatry in the Bible, we often don't think that this is uh, a problem for us. However, in his book, uh, Counterfeit Gods, Timothy Keller, he writes that idolatry is alive and rampant. Keller argues that an idol is something which is more important to us than God. Anything which so absorbs our heart and our imagination that we believe to attain it, to attain it with, will give us meaning, significance, security, safety, and fulfillment. To gain this thing, 
will give us security, safety, meaning, fulfillment. And worse, to lose it would leave us utterly despondent. Life would no longer be worth living. Keller argues that an idol, a a counterfeit God, is almost never a bad thing as we might assume. But it is more often than not a good thing which we turn in to the ultimate thing. And he writes that our, our hearts are idle factories. We set up, um, well set up, sorry, and equipped to pump out false gods for us to worship. Ready to turn good things, created things, into the ultimate thing. Career, relationship, material possessions, and family can all take this central position of significance. Can all become things that we look to for meaning, status, safety, and significance. They, be, they can become the things that we look to to satisfy the, the deepest needs and hopes of our lives. And Keller writes that there are many ways to describe that kind of relationship. But perhaps the best one is worship. It's worship. Whether we realize it or not, we all worship something. We all look to something to give us significance, look to something for hope and for joy. And writing in the wake of the the 2007-2008 global financial crisis, Keller posits that money and greed can be the most insidious and the most difficult to identify idols of our lives. So many uh, Western writers and thinkers have identified that our culture is a culture of greed, one in which economic gain and financial security are king. There are thousands of podcasts out there telling us where to put our money, how best to invest to maximize return. It's a culture where every kid on the bus can tell me how much Ronaldo earns and which, which brands sponsor him. Or they tell me how great it would be to be an influencer, getting rich by posting videos. Our culture is is saturated with the talk of money. And when people hear that I work for the church, they ask, oh, how do you get paid? And I tell them I don't know. But that's, that's often the first question I get asked. And again, there's there's nothing inherently wrong with seeking to be financially wise. There's nothing wrong with seeking to to honor God with, yeah, with investing our money well. But that's exactly why the worship of money and why greed can be the most difficult to identify in ourselves. Because an idol is a good thing, made an ultimate thing. And our culture has explicitly made financial security greed and money, the ultimate thing. This is the culture that we are swimming in. So like a fish who is completely oblivious to the water in which it swims, we can become oblivious to the worship of money, the culture of greed all around us. So this morning, I want us to to take a moment uh, and to step back and to ask whether this could be me. Is this my problem? Because whilst lying and murder and sexual immorality are very easily identified in us, 
right? Nobody's confused whether they murdered somebody or not. Almost, almost nobody thinks that this is their problem. Because we are, we are all too often busy comparing ourselves with those in the bracket above us. None of us thinks that we worship money because we see all those people who have so much more, who are doing so much better. Greed isn't our problem, but it might be, it might be theirs. Yet Jesus warns of greed more than he warns of sex or lying or murder. And in a culture which exudes an inherent love of money, Keller suggests that we should all start with the working hypothesis that this could very well be me. And the thinking, it can go, go like this. Right now, in my circumstances right now, I, I can't afford to give away money. Because I've, I've got bills to pay, and I've got to create a little bit of a, a buffer in my finances. I need to save up uh, to buy a house, to pay off a wedding. What if, I, what if I get injured and I can't work? How will I provide for myself or my family? What if I want to have kids one day? What if I want to send my, my kids to a, a really good school? What if my parents get sick and I have to support them? And the thing about that list is these are all very good and legitimate things. Can I just affirm that? They are good and legitimate things. But this is why it is the very risk. Because in seeking to do what is good and right, money can slowly and subtly move into the central position of our hearts and our minds. From a good thing into the ultimate thing. To the thing that, that will give us security, safety, and meaning. So Keller, Keller again, uh, says this. Money is one of the most common counterfeit gods. When it takes hold of your heart, it blinds you to what is happening. It controls you through your anxieties and your lusts. And it brings you to put it ahead of all other things. It controls you through your anxieties and your lusts. And it brings you to put it ahead of family, to put it in front of friends and in the place of God. And this is why I think we need to take this so seriously because Jesus agrees in Luke 16. He says, no servant can serve two masters for he will either hate one and love the other. He will be devoted to, to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You, you cannot. You cannot serve God and money because the, to worship money is to give yourself over to it instead of to God. And that is not a trade I want to make. If we look back at the, the rich young ruler, sincerely seeking God, but when he is told that it, was, it would cost him his vast possessions and money, cost him the, the security and the, the comfort that those things afforded him, he simply walks away, filled with great sorrow. How would you respond if Jesus asked that of you? I would struggle. Jesus doesn't leave it there. He says to his disciples, how difficult it will be 
for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And 25, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Well, it's because they put their trust, their hope, their adoration in the worship of money instead of in God. And ultimately, that will be the wrong decision. And before we brush it off, we're, we're starting with the assumption that this could be us. And so we ask like the disciples did uh, in that, that next little paragraph, which I haven't got up behind me, but we ask, who then can be saved? And that's a good question. C.S. Lewis said this, it would seem our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition, and I add money. When infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what it meant, what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And I think this is what's going on in the interaction. For the rich young ruler, he is happy sitting in the slum, playing with the mud pie of his possessions and wealth when the offer of something so much better is right in front of him. He thought to give up all he had was too great a cost because he could not imagine what Christ had come to offer, what he had come to do and to be. So he missed it. He turned around and he walked away. When Jesus said to Zacchaeus, today salvation has come to this house. For the son of man has come to seek and to save the lost. Salvation had indeed come. And it had come in the man of Jesus. He had come to save sinners lost to death, enslaved to sin, destined for eternal destruction. And he'd saved them into the very family of God, the, the loving arms of a father. Jesus is, is standing there offering a mountain of gold in return for a pile of mud and a few worms. And this guy missed it. Because what Zacchaeus and the, the rich young ruler had hoped for but were unable to find in their wealth. The answer to that deep spiritual hunger that, that neither of their possessions were able to fill. The answer, the answer, sorry, to that gnawing sense of not measuring up, of not being good enough, of the guilt and the shame of their sins, which was unable to be erased by all of their righteousness, their good deeds, their achievements, and their worldly power. The answer to all of that was standing in front of them. And he was offering himself completely. If they would just stop worshiping themselves, their money, and the false security that it offered. If they would just follow him. This Jesus who weeks later would hang on a cross in their place. Who would pay the price of their sin. Who would set them free and bring them home if only. If only they would lay down their love of money. 
if only they would follow him. So this is the, the difference between the two men in our stories. When Zacchaeus encountered Jesus, he did so with humility, not with self-righteousness, but with humility. He realized what he had to gain and upon accepting that gift, the gift of salvation, forgiveness, eternal life and restored relationship with God, his relationship with everything else changed. What, what wouldn't he give in response to that kind of generosity? To that gracious inclusion. Money, money no longer had its appeal because he had found the deepest desires of his heart and he had found it in this Jesus. And for Zacchaeus, his actions, his actions confirmed his belief. His actions affirmed confirmed and proved his belief. So today, that same Jesus is standing before us and he is offering more than we could imagine to anyone who would accept him, to anyone who would say, yes, I wish to accept that grace, the grace that your blood has brought for me. I will accept that mountain of gold and I will hand back this pile of mud. And if that's you today, go for gold. Pray, pray for somebody, uh, pray, sorry, with somebody. You, you cannot lose out in that decision. But we all need to realize that we, we cannot worship him and money at the same time. We cannot. So the way to overcome this is to resolve to worship him with our money. Practically, how does that look? What does it look like to, to resolve to worship God with our money? It's a decision, a, a pre-decision on an amount, a percentage. Historically, tithe has been taken to mean 10%, but the, the percentage is between you and God. It means to, to commit, to commit this amount to God from your paycheck and before you spend it on anything else. The Bible talks about giving your first fruits to God. A way of saying, God, you've given me everything. All I have belongs to you. More than that, my salvation, which I freely enjoy, cost Jesus everything to gain. So the first thing I will do with this paycheck, this thing that you have given me, is to return it back to you in worship. Maybe you're already doing that. Maybe you've got your percentage and you're, you're on fire with that, which is great. But what if you were to feel God's prompt, that really uncomfortable prompt just under the ribs, to give an amount, an uncomfortable amount, to give an amount which is outside your budget, which doesn't make sense, to that person you know is doing it tough, to that organization who is working with those who are doing it tough. Maybe, maybe you just want to ignore that. So maybe resolving for you, it looks like following that prompt, 
not putting, putting boundaries on what he can ask of you, but resolving to worship God with all of you, with your money, especially when it hurts, when it's uncomfortable. Because at the end of the day, it is his anyway. So today I just want to leave us with the question or, or leave us asking God the question, God, how will I resolve to worship you with, you with my money? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, we thank you for this morning. Lord, I know that um, this is an uncomfortable topic. Lord, I know that um, there's lots of us that, lots of me that, that doesn't want to give this over. Lord, that, that struggles with this. But I look, yeah, I pray, Father, that, that you would help us to trust, to just trust in you so deeply. Lord, that as we give um, of our finances to you, Lord, as we offer our, our first fruits to you, um, Lord, that we would do so in worship, in praise and thanksgiving for all that you have done with it, for us. Lord, and that we would trust you so deeply to provide. Lord, you are faithful and you are steadfast and you are trustworthy. So I pray that we will trust you. Praise the things in Jesus' name. Amen.